0: Welcome to Grief is my side hustle. I am your host, as always, Megan Reardon Jarvis. And I have a crazy grin on my face because <laughs> we have with us today good morning podcast hosts, Sal and M. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having us, MRJ. MRJ.
2: We are beyond excited to chat with you. We've been really looking forward to this one. So thanks for having us on
0: your pod. I wish you guys didn't live so far away. I have to say this. I just Australia is really far from Washington, DC. But if we were closer, I have all these fantasies of like, oh, we should run this workshop and we should do these things. And And most of it's just over here in my head when I'm listening to you or reading this extraordinary new book that you guys just put out in the world. We're getting it right now in the US as this podcast is coming out, but I had it a few weeks ago and I've read it twice and I, I, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I am so freaking proud of the two of you. You put out a really good grief book. Oh, thank you.
1: I mean, that means a lot coming from you, somebody who is an expert in this space. So thank you so much. And likewise, if we lived close by, we would be going for all the wines, all the coffee,
0: but we
1: love, we love our relationship and you're so, so supportive and just such a joy to know. So thank you.
0: The other thing I want to say is we're all grief experts, right? I mean, that's the thing is that you're an expert mountain climber once you climb the mountain and then you know how to do it and you can look back and tell other people who don't know how to do it yet. You know, I have some background in trauma, um, which probably just means I've seen deeper into the cave with some people. But I really think this notion of sort of who is a grief expert, anyone who grieves is an expert certainly in their own grief. And what I love about your book is you guys do this really gorgeous job of telling your stories, about telling other people's stories, and then covering all of what I would say are the real hot topics of what we haven't been told is the truth about grief. There's a lot of topics that we haven't been told about grief, I think.
2: like. Yeah, just researching for the book and listening to our community time and time again, like, we just hear the same things, you know, people don't feel seen, they don't feel heard, they're completely unprepared when they are thrown into into grief, and Sal and I were when our mums died suddenly, and we'll get into a little bit about our stories, but it is just grief is that thing that you've got no idea how huge and how life-changing it is until you experience it yourself. And I, I do think we all become a bit of an expert once we're thrown in.
0: Well, and I think for some of us, there's also that like, God, it. I really don't think it should have been this hard. And so mm-hmm. I want to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for the other people. And I'll read any grief book someone puts in front of me. I don't find them all as equally useful, but that doesn't mean that someone else isn't, you know, a book I don't Doesn't resonate with me doesn't mean it's not going to resonate with somebody else. What I really love about you guys, just in general, is you will tell the truth, the whole holy truth of what it feels like to grieve and in your specific griefs. And you are really willing to say, Oh my God, here's what we learned. You're very enthusiastic about the learning. And that I think just makes it like, Oh, we all want to learn these things. So again, like I listen to your podcast because I learn from it. I want to ask you guys, um, can you just tell us about how you came into this space, which is, you know, not that long ago for either of you? Im, do you want to start? Absolutely. So
2: I came into the grief space after the sudden and unexpected suicide of my mum, Vanessa. She was 62 at the time. I was 32. I was a mum to a nine month old baby girl, and it just blew my world apart. Um, my mum didn't experience any previous mental health issues. So she, I've said this before, but she's the last person on earth that I could have ever imagined doing what she did. Um, so I learned very quickly that suicide doesn't discriminate and it can happen to anyone. And that was a really frightening realization for me. Um, so yeah, I went from being a new mom to a suicide loss survivor in an instant, and it was the darkest, most painful, scariest time of my life. And there were many moments where I didn't think that I would survive to be completely honest.
0: Mm Yeah. Yeah. What does that Mm -hmm. feel like just to even say? Because I know you say it. I've heard you say it before. Does it pull you back into it? Or do you feel like it's sort of a plate that you have in front of you now and you can say it without it?
2: That's so interesting. Yeah. I feel like I've come leaps and bounds and I can say it now with a bit of pride and strength that I did survive. Yeah, And I have I will. I don't think I've come out the other side because I don't think you really do that with grief. I think it's something you carry forever, but I do think that I have come out of a lot of the trauma of my grief, which is very mm. different to my grief. Oh my
1: God. And like the M I know now, cause I've been on this journey with you and it's part of our mm. story, which we'll get into, but the M that I know now from the M that I first met is so, so different. You were in understandably such a dark place when we first met and to see how you have coped and come as far as you have I'm so proud of you because it it's such a traumatic thing to happen and can I just say a bit of gratitude
2: for you Sal for sitting with me in that because we'd just met and Sal sat with me in that like I was on a loop all I could talk about was the day and the, the circumstances surrounding what happened and like the darkness and the heaviness and Sal sat with me in that heaviness like who does that someone you just met and she was there you know and didn't leave
1: I think that's what makes our friendship and our story so special because we met just months after our mums had died suddenly my mum died by a sudden seizure it's called SUDEP Um, she lived in the UK and I live here in Australia and as an expat living anywhere in the world One of the payoffs of not being close by is that if something bad happens, like your worst nightmare, right, someone dying or something terrible happening to somebody that you care about, the payoff is that you're not there. So I found out one morning that my mum had died suddenly from a seizure and I found myself on the next flight home. 24 hour flight, it's pretty tough as it is, let alone doing it when you're in shock and, you know, grief and coming to terms with the fact that you are on the way to plan your mum's funeral. um And it was, yeah, I was just thrown into this experience that I was not prepared for, hadn't even given grief a second thought, didn't really know much about the grief experience. And it was all consuming. Yeah. And both Im and I both found that grief is incredibly lonely and isolating, and it's only when you're in it that you kind of go, "Well, hang on a minute. This is a universal human experience. We all go through grief. It's no one is exempt. Yet it is like no one talks about it. It's still such a taboo, and this is absolutely crazy." So anyway, Im and I met at a support group and we didn't really get to chat much, but we both heard each other's stories that we were a similar age in our early 30s. Our mums had both died suddenly and we kind of vibed each other, didn't we, Im? Um,
2: I was eyeing you up across the table.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I remember I was eyeing your wine up because I'd driven and I had a coffee and I was like, well, that wine looks nice, but I was also eyeing you up as well. Um, (laughs) But... Im dropped me a message on Facebook and said, you know, do you want to like? I understand what it's like to lose your mum young and suddenly. Would you like to meet up? And then that's kind of how our friendship grew. But the point I was getting at is that it's really unusual to start a friendship when you are in the darkest pain and the deepest grief. It's quite an unusual setting for a friendship to grow. And Im I'm so honoured that I could support you then and now, Um, and we really did support each other because it was finding that light in the dark and that beacon Mm. of like hope and understanding because for us both being, I was 33 and you were 32, not a lot of our peers had experienced loss. So even as supportive and as well-meaning as they were, you can't really share what's going on for you. And I think also sometimes because we're not a grief literate society, you don't even know what's going on for you yourself, yeah. right? So for Im and I, it was like shining a light for each other on our experiences. And we were helping each other unpack like, oh, my God, like this constant exhaustion, like feeling like I've been on a week long bender. Do you feel that, too? Is it grief? And we were kind of helping each other sort of explore how we were feeling
0: The description of it like almost makes me a little bit teary when you you guys in the book tell your stories and there were pieces in both of them. I think the the sudden loss, that very specific trauma of of just going from a world that you understand to a world that you don't understand at all anymore and what that does to your body and your brain Mm -hmm. and how hungry you are for someone else to say, I get that right? Because it almost feels like they're like planting your feet back on the ground. And one of the things that happened that I've talked about a lot when my mom died suddenly was that I just had, I think I said this on your podcast, I had this ruminating thought that it was my fault. You know, it was just literally like, oh Megan, it's your fault. She died because I was with her. And I knew also it wasn't my fault that she died. And so when people only stood on the right-hand side of me and they were like, but it's not your fault. I was like, Mm -hmm. so I'm all alone on the left side where I actually believe it's my fault. I know intellectually it's not my fault, but I Mm -hmm. also believe that it is. And I have one friend who is a therapist who happened to be in the town when, where I was. And I was like, I need you to let me say this. I need you to let me say it. Like, don't stop me. I think it's my fault that my mom died. And she said, I am so sorry you have to feel that way but I won't take that from you. And it was like, she had pulled up a deck chair next to mine and was like, okay, I'll sit out here in the rain with you. I'm not going to try to talk you in off the rain Mm. out of the rain. And I think part of what is so extraordinary about how you guys found each other. We use that phrase trauma bond as like a bad thing, but Mm. in my experience bonding with someone in my trauma has been life-saving because you feel so less alone.
2: My God, trauma bond buddies. I love it.
0: Right? Well, we use that phrase in this sort of shaming way. Like, oh, well they're in a relationship together because they've trauma bonded. And I'm like, yeah, but not all trauma bonding means that, you know, people save each other's lives in it. And I also think the way that you can reflect to each other, like, wow, you're doing so well. Look how much you've done. Remember when it was so bad. To Also be Mm -hmm. able to do that in a place of friendship which is, you know, you came to each other in a time of need. You weren't already connected to each other. Mm. You, you didn't, you weren't disappointing each other by not doing the things that you used to do. We didn't have those expectations of the relationship. <sighs> just something that
2: you just mentioned before Megan, about how you experienced like the guilt as well. Like you sat there and you you basically told yeah. yourself it was your fault. So obviously I experienced the same, same thing. I just was convinced that it was all my fault. Um, Just a bit of information if anyone is listening that is experiencing that as well, something I found really helpful that made sense of those thoughts. And you're probably already all over this, but it's our mind's way of trying to take back some control out of a chaotic and uncontrollable world. So it's like bad things can happen. And until something bad has happened to you, it's impossible to kind of imagine our loved ones dying suddenly in an instant. So I think if we tell ourselves that it was our fault, then that means that we had a little bit of control over the situation. And I think that that's our mind's way of trying to make sense Mm -hmm. of things. And I, when I heard that, it just was a huge relief for me. So it might be helpful for anyone listening.
0: I love the way that you just said that because it also just, instead of making your mind a battlefield that you are battling against, you're like, Oh, Mm -hmm. you're trying to help me by coming up with a way where I feel less out of control around this Mm -hmm. terrible outcome. And I think that's another thing that happens to us in grief is like our bodies won't sleep and our minds won't think straight. And, you know, we, there are all these symptoms that happen and it sort of feels like you're fighting with yourself. Mm -hmm. I know sleep is a thing and I know anxiety for, for, um, Sal, you've talked a lot about it and I certainly have had that experience and I can you know, wake up, see that it's five o'clock in the morning and be mad at myself instead of maybe the way you just described it. M, which is like, well, this is just how your body is trying to reckon with this impossible emotional mm. experience. And then it just feels gentler. I love that. I love the way that you mm. describe that. And you guys do mm. write about that also. Um, you start the book by talking about the elephant in the room. And I could read that chapter a thousand times because I feel like if there was anything, if there was a, the most important thing, it has to be to understand that grievers are grieving everywhere they go, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: that they're grieving everywhere they go. And so maybe if we were going to overcorrect for the lifetime of minimizing grief, we could just ask everyone, so, is anybody celebrating anything today? Anybody grieving? How are, you know, how are we doing? I wondered if you because it felt like such a rich chapter. Do either of you or both of you have examples where you were in a room and you were the elephant was sitting on you and people were not naming that your mom's had died and it made it oppressive? Has that happened for you guys?
1: Oh, so many times. Um we really wanted to open the book with that chapter by talking about some of the myths and misconceptions about grief, because I think even when you are grieving, if you've got no experience of grief, if you're not really educated on the topic, you might not even realize that some of these myths and misconceptions exist. And we can also put a lot of pressure on ourselves, right? And shame ourselves. But for me, the elephant was present many times, like I have been In social situations, couple of months after mum died, where I've seen people and they've just not said anything. And as we all know, that is one of the worst things that you can do. Like, just say something, right? It doesn't have to be poetic. It doesn't have to be profound. It can just be, I'm really sorry that this must be really hard for you. But people just, they're awkward. They shy away from the topic, right? And it makes the elephant just grow even bigger. It's so awkward. And Im, I know you've had loads of
2: experiences as well, haven't you? I'm just going to start dressing my elephant up, like whacking some earrings on and like, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think with suicide loss, it's very it's a very uncomfortable topic for people and they Mm tiptoe around it. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard, but it, I I do want to say it, it is hard supporting someone through grief too. And, mm-hmm. and we can appreciate how hard that must be. And I think people fear of saying the wrong thing. And that's potentially why they shy away from saying anything.
0: When, when you are talking about this, what I'm wondering about in my head is like, can we tell the audience what happens when someone says, I was so sorry to hear about your mom? we we're we're describing what it's like, like, and for me, I just got angry. It's like, I'm showing up with two broken arms. I know you can see them. Like, why won't you just say something? But what's, what's even richer, I think is to like, what, ha- so what does happen if somebody says, I was thinking about you and your mom the other day, or I was thinking about your mom, or I saw something about suicide the other day. And it made me think of you like when someone is willing to do it, what what's the proactive what's the good that comes of that
2: i think it validates what's going on for you you know it's just that little bit of acknowledgement makes you feel seen and because you're living with it all the time mm-hmm. you know and i think people also think I don't want to say something cause it's going to remind them of their sadness or, you know, remind them that their loved one's dead. It's like, we're thinking about it all the time. It's very prevalent in everything that we do every day. So it kind of gives us that permission to just be like, okay, yeah, I am grieving still. And, and mm-hmm. you, yeah, you're giving me that permission to grieve and acknowledging. And it also keeps, keeps our mums alive yeah you know mm. just having someone mention them or bring them up or say their name it it, yeah. it it keeps them alive and that's super important for people that are grieving and it's
1: that's thoughtful right. it shows it shows that they care but also acknowledging that that your person is very much alive in your heart and mind i think people think that we don't want to hear their name and it might be the case for some people everyone's different right there's no one size fits all when it comes to grief but showing that you acknowledge
0: them still as a person can Mm. be really really powerful to me it feels like some when you walk into a room and it's crowded and somebody is like oh do you want to sit down like i'll move Mm. over on the couch if you want Mm. to sit down and it's like oh well do i want to sit down maybe i don't maybe i don't want to talk about my mom i'm i'm Mm. comfortable being like no i'm good i don't need to talk about it but just the generosity of like oh you saw me come in you know i'm a person everyone else is sitting they're comfortable. You're just wondering, am I comfortable? And I, right. And so to me, it just feels like everybody else gets to feel that way. You know that, right. So like, why, why? And, and it is the illiteracy of it, but I think it's important to say to people, like, I had a miscarriage before my, before I had my daughter And it was kind of late and it was totally up until then, it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And I didn't think I knew anyone who'd had a miscarriage, but as soon as you say the word miscarriage, all of a sudden you start hearing all these people who have also had pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. And my younger sister who I hadn't been pregnant, didn't have kids. She called, she called and she said, well, I knew I wasn't going to be able to make you feel any worse. So I called, you know, in the off chance, this was the right thing to do. And I just, I've never forgotten it. It was 16 years ago, but I've never forgotten where she was like, she was willing to get wet. She was willing to go out in a storm and come back worse off. Mm -hmm. Me saying, Oh God, why'd you bring it up? Or whatever, how, whatever my reaction was going to be. But really what she knew was she wasn't going to have caused my reaction because Mm -hmm. I was devastated. She was just coming into the tent. Right. And that, we want that. We just don't want to be alone in that tent. And that's what it sounds like when you guys write about your friendship. I mean, I think I wrote down the page somewhere, but the cutest thing is that you show your first text to each other and it's so <laughs> cute it's
1: like
2: yes it was so polite <laughs> so <laughs> was like, oh, wow. yeah, yeah now
1: it's just all <laughs> swear words um but I love the tent analogy and I think for people supporting it does take vulnerability and courage to step out into the rain and be willing to get wet you know and to be willing to sit there with somebody who's grieving it's not easy we we acknowledge that um it is a brave thing to do but it can be so powerful and to have that space, to have that acknowledgement of what you're going through, it's, it can be invaluable to somebody who's grieving, as you, yeah. as you know.
0: Yeah, and I think it's how we change the culture, right? Is like doing totally. awkward things. I mean, I use this example all the time, but like sex is super awkward right? I mean, it's just super awkward. It's like, do they want to kiss me? Do they not want to kiss me? Like somebody has to move through the awkward in order for the good stuff to happen. And we don't say to 17 year olds who are going through their first kiss, like, well, it was awkward. Just don't like, like leave them alone for a couple of months. Don't call them, (laughs) you you know, they may be uncomfortable. Like we don't, we assume that there's going to be intimacy on the other side. And the thing that I think your friendship really shows us and, and has been extraordinary for me is there is this kind of profound intimacy around the emotional experience of loss that can be, you can find yourself in it, right? I mean, to me, that's what your podcast feels like is these really Mm -hmm. profound and intimate conversations because most people don't come into this with just an academic mindset. They come into it with their own personal expertise of having gone through loss,
1: And that's what you do too, MRJ. And there is so much power in storytelling and connecting over our vulnerabilities and our shared experiences of loss. And that was one of the things that Im and I found when we'd meet up and when our friendship was growing and we'd have all these long chats about grief. God forbid anyone who overheard what we were talking about, hey, they would have been like, these girls are such fun. Um, (laughs) But we really longed to hear more stories about the realities of loss because we aren't grief literate as a society so we don't hear what other people are going through very often and Im and I were like well if we're going through this and we're isolated in our loss and and we're craving to hear other people's experiences and other people's raw truths then surely there must be loads of other people um, who are craving the same thing too. And it was, we launched the pod like two months after we had the idea for it. And it was like, we just opened a gateway, didn't we, to Mm -mm. so many other grievers who were just like craving to hear really authentic
2: conversations about the realities of loss. I remember the exact moment that i found my first podcast episode where I could semi-relate to the woman. Mm -hmm. I remember trawling podcasts, just looking, I was like suicide loss, sudden mother loss, like trying to be really specific and niche to hear that someone else has gone through this because all I needed to know that I was going to be able to survive, you know, and just hearing someone else's experience and hearing that they've gone through it and -hmm. survived kind of gave me hope as well so yeah I remember the exact I was driving in my car I was in Ultimo and I found a podcast and a a young woman's mum had died by suicide and I was like I'm not alone like but it was hard to find there weren't many resources there were definitely not in Australia there weren't podcasts talking about suicide loss you know in great detail um and so that was one of the big driving forces behind what Sal and I created through Good Morning was we really wanted that safe space where people could come and feel seen and have mm-hmm. their experience validated and just relate to to people. And that was really for important it, for us.
1: Yeah, and for it not to be awkward, right? you think, oh, a podcast about <laughs> grief, that's probably going to be awkward or a bit we made it banter <laughs> somehow so, along so the way make,
2: we've made it dance.
1: <laughs> yeah, to be like super relatable and like, approachable down to earth and dare we say it like humorous yeah and some people hilarious. might go mm, grief and humor how do you how do you marry the two but I think mm-hmm. we managed to do it pretty
0: well well and I think you guys talk a lot about sort of like the energy you know Emma, I'm thinking about how you have both on the podcast your Instagram but in the book talked really frankly about the panic that that was inside your body. And I, again, I think in order for us to be able to connect, people have to be able to tell the truth about how they feel. And so we're not just not grief literate. We're like not awesome about like emotion words and feeling words. Mm-hmm. So I was really surprised to discover that anger was a lot of my, how my grief showed up. And it really made me wonder as a clinician, the people who came in that were deeply, deeply angry. And I was talking to them about their anger. I really wondered about the missed opportunity of talking to them about whatever loss they hadn't yet named or known for themselves. And I do that really differently now. And, and that, I mean, I think for me, my experience was, I thought I kind of knew everything And then I went through and I was so angry, right? Like, what do you mean Mm -hmm. that knowing, having read all the books about this doesn't, doesn't mean that you get inoculated from having to do the actual experience of grief. But when I came out, I was like, I got to tell the people the things that I now know from the inside, because I wasn't telling them. I thought I was telling the truth, but there's a truthier truth. And I'm just thinking about, you know, you you talk about panic and the energy in the body. Can you talk a little bit about that, like what that was like for you, and how you how did you manage it? You know, you were a mom to a tiny little one. Like what what did you do to survive? I was, I was
2: so angry too, Megan, and that was one of the strongest emotions: anger and guilt which really took me by surprise, but the anger was unbelievable. I just remember like, I could feel it searing through my body. I wanted to smash up the house. Like I still have days where I'm so Mm -hmm. angry and I feel like shameful for, I feel awful for feeling that. And I remember I used to just leave. I'd start an argument with my partner and I'd just take off out the front door and leave them and like this explosive exit and I'd get into my car and I'd drive around the streets and I'd scream you know even thinking about back to that time it was so heavy and I'd just scream over the music and just I didn't know where I was going I didn't know I was just running from the pain and I just knew I couldn't be around anybody you know like the anger was so real and I still have my days yeah. where I feel angry but look underneath the anger is hurt know. you know and that's so important for people to know it's like anger is a normal emotion it's a healthy emotion to feel and underneath it there's so much going on for you and expressing it is the most important thing and mm. understanding it you know, it serves, it serves a purpose. Like our mom's died suddenly. It's not fair. You yeah. know, of course we're angry. I'm in this situation where I've got a, a baby and my imagined future, you know, spending time with my mom and watching my daughter grow older together, like it's just got taken away from me. So I was really pissed off. Yeah. But coming into like the energy, I think I've... Uh, not lucky, but I think something that helped me a lot is I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder when I was 17. So I had quite a complicated upbringing and I never put the two and two together and I never identified that perhaps I'd been through smaller traumas before and never processed them. And then that's switched my body and my mind into fight or flight mode. I didn't have the the knowledge to understand what was happening to me, but because I think I lived in that, that, state for a long time I knew some of the tools that helped me and I knew some of the things to look out for and my anxiety went through the roof when my mom died I thought my daughter was gonna die I thought everyone around me was gonna die I would check her breathing in the night I was obsessed with like any little you know change in my body I was like oh this this is it (laughs) You know, so I was constantly monitoring and it was exhausting. And when I found out about the mind-body connection, and I know this is one of your favorite topics, it changed my life, absolutely changed the game for me. And I understood and learned that trauma actually changes the cells and stays stored in your body. Who knew that? I didn't. No one told me that. (laughs) You know, it wasn't until I'd been through extreme trauma that I was like floundering, trying to find anything to help me survive and make sense. And then I came across, you know, the incredible work of Essel van Der know. you know, the body keeps the score. We interviewed Rebecca Jax, who's an energy healer, you know, yeah. who heals trauma in the body after a brother's suicide. And I was like, wow, this is exactly what I need. And so understanding that mind-body connection changed my grief experience altogether. I started separating my grief from my trauma, which I don't think a lot of people do. I think it's all so intertwined and mixed up. They're just so afraid of their grief and they think grief is just this really awful experience. But now I kind of look at my grief as my connection to my mum. But the trauma is attached Mm -hmm. to the death and all of that heavy stuff. So separating those two has been really helpful. And so I do my trauma work and then I do my grief work and they look very different. Like my grief work is all about connecting and processing and and it's softer. And my trauma work is like, I'm going to get this shit out of my body. You know, I'm going to remove all this junk that's sitting inside my body and it's changed my life. And I went from living in a constant state of fight or flight, even prior to my mom dying to now I don't live in that state anymore. Would I have ever even got out of that state if I hadn't experienced suicide loss? Probably not
0: because we don't get taught these things. We don't, we don't, we don't get taught these things. That's the thing that makes me like want to bang my head up against a wall because I did a lot of my own trauma work. Didn't really realize that the ways in which I felt different from other people, it was like all roads lead to Rome events Mm -hmm. in my childhood that are like, oh no, people who have those events have your constellation of experiences. Mm -hmm. And I, I said before we got on mic that I had dinner last night with David Kessler, who we all know is an extraordinary grief grief expert and lecturer and Lisa Williams, who also educates those of us who are the educators about how to um, help and support people grieving. But what I said to them was, I'm still reactive. So even mm-hmm. though I've done all the things, I train people in all the things, there are still times where I'm like, oh, I'm fucking out of here. Like mm-hmm. I will still get, It's not. it doesn't stop, right? So it's not about being able to not feel the grief or not feel the trauma and God, am I haven't heard anybody really describe pull those two things apart. So well, I think what we more often see is it's obscured. You can't really tell the difference between. And, and when I'm working with people, cause I come from a trauma background, I'm like, Oh, this is hard for you because you don't understand that there's like shards of glass stuck in you from something else that happened. And that's why it's so extra painful. But I still, I have a thing that I call Megan double guns, which is like, you're talking to me. We're having a normal conversation. All of a sudden, do you know that little character, Yosemite Sam, like with the big mustache and the big, (laughs) I'm like, I'm here with my guns. I'm going to shoot you. And then I'm going to burn your house down. And that, as soon as Megan double guns comes out, what I know is we are in the presence of trauma, unresolved trauma, because- that I, I'm not a weaponized person, otherwise, mm. and I need to turn around and look for grief, mm-hmm. because my that trauma reaction is always so that I don't have to do the grief. I can just like leave it behind me, not do it, mm. not worry about it. And I want to do it. I need to do it. So I I'm just saying that out loud for people that like we're works in progress. And I, you know, if you could know better. With your brain, I would already not do these things. (laughs) But in reality, grief is a full contact sport and trauma lives inside ourselves, just like you just said. And so the game isn't to outsmart and never have to have the experiences. The game is to come back into regulation and to know how to calm your system back down and come back into connection. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And I love that analogy that it's a, it's a full contact sport because it exactly is. And we have a whole chapter in our book dedicated to how grief impacts you physically, because I think for us both, that was one of the biggest surprises about grief. Like I was exhausted and I would be going to bed and getting an eight hours sleep and I was exhausted still. And then there would be bouts of insomnia. And I felt like as soon as, You know, there would be times when I would go to bed and it was like all of my grief would come out as soon as my head hit the pillow and I couldn't sleep. And then I'd be it was just this cycle. And then there was the anxiety like in I was gripped by anxiety. I know we spoke about this um, on our podcast with you, Megan, but I I had to work through an intense fear that my husband was going to die as well because of the sudden loss. Um, I would wake up and just feel like ooh, fear. But then there was brain fog as well, like forgetting things, just feeling confused. Um, I have an autoimmune disease, which flared up and basically got significantly worse. I had a blood test about a week before my mum died and then another blood test a month or two after she passed, and it it had progressed significantly. And we had to up my medication and things like that. And you just don't realize how much it's impacted by grief. And I think a lot of people think they don't connect the dots. Yeah. And that's why it was really important for us to talk about it in the book and share our experiences and really deep dive into not only how grief can impact you physically, but the ways that you can help yourself, because it is, like you say, it's a full contact sport. and, And people just often think, oh, grief, you know, it's just sadness. But, oh, my God, like, no, nah, it's
2: so much more than that. I remember as well, and I think this is important to highlight, but I remember Sal feeling like there was obviously something else wrong with her. I remember you thinking that oh, your yeah. your loss didn't classify as trauma or traumatic as well, and it totally did. And I think learning that has been really helpful for you to be able to connect those dots. You know, I think you thought you had to go through either suicide or a homicide or something for it to be classified as traumatic loss, but we learned that it doesn't necessarily work like that. A sudden death is traumatic. A -hmm. premature death is traumatic. Like trauma can be, you know, whatever the experience was for you, it's traumatic, you know.
1: That's a really good point, Im, because I I absolutely did. I thought my experience was a kind of low-key Not not a traumatic qualifier, you know, and and so we might dismiss how we're feeling because we're like, oh well, you know, I shouldn't really be feeling that way because, you know, I didn't go through a suicide or you know, a a homicide.
0: I think also, I mean, I think conversations like this are really important because I think it's difficult when you are in a space that you haven't been emotionally before, like you're having a Mm -hmm. birthday you've been to other people's birthdays, they're excited or they're sad. So we have some sort of like conception. And I don't know what we think we are supposed to feel when you get a phone call from the other side of the world that your mother died. I don't know what we think that is supposed to look like, but it never is inside. And the brain immediately starts to fuck with you. Right. So it like starts to try to cut off you forming memories and you start to. So in the in the experience that I have of sudden information, Mm -hmm. I also sometimes have a little bit of shame about how I behaved, because things like when I was in high school, we learned that my grandfather died and my first thought was like, oh, I'm going to miss my high school orientation. And I was like, what kind mm. of shitty person am I? Except you're not a shitty person. Your brain is not doing what it would normally do mm. in terms of formulating thoughts. And so I find all that psychoed so important, but also what do we expect, right? If our brain is a predictive tool, it has to, I know what water's gonna taste like because I've tasted water before. I know what it's like to go to the movies because I've gone to the movies before. It's not that I can't be shocked there but I've Mm -hmm. never been on the other side of a phone call that my mother died. This is a brand new life experience. And as you know, in trauma, which I think is really confusing because it's like depression or anxiety. People use the word wrong and sometimes um, not disparagingly, but they use it disrespectfully. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Trauma is just a thing. It's just an event that happens and it could Mm -hmm. be anything you know, I tell this story in my memoir, but my mom used to leave us in the car because it was the early 80s because I'm older than you guys. Now You would get arrested <laughs> for this now, but you didn't then. She would leave us in the car and she would go grocery shopping. But one of the, one of the formative events of my childhood was that a teenager died and then we never talked about it anymore. And so I just didn't I, like it's a lot to learn. And as a nine year old, that kids can die. So my mother would go into the grocery store. She was probably in there for 30 minutes, but it felt like half my life. And I would watch that door open and close, freaking terrified that somehow she had gone out of my sight and oh. she was going to die. And then we were going to be trapped in this car. And it almost makes me laugh because it's so irrational, except what it really makes me want to do as a grown-up is go to that car and take that kid out and hug her and talk to her. Because mm-hmm. that happened so many times. So how many people sat in a grocery store parking lot and would describe that as traumatization, but it was for me, it mm-hmm. was, it, it wasn't a car accident. I wasn't, you know, no one was trying to kidnap me. I was just sitting safely in a car and my mom did it a hundred times. And every time was, it was worse than the, mm. the beginning. And so that's the thing I'm always careful to say is trauma is not something horrifying by mm. someone else's de- definition. It's a thing that happens that you code inside your system with that fight, flight, freeze, threat response.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, that meaning stays inside you. And that's mm. how you get traumatized.
1: Thank you for, right? sure for saying that. Cause it's, that is so validating because I think for Im and I, like Im mentioned earlier, she she had a difficult childhood, and I had a difficult childhood as well. And it's, again, yeah. another thing that we kind of trauma bond over, jokes <laughs> we connect over. Um, but <laughs> we, I think it's only since losing our mums that we've then realised that the that we've also gone through. Other traumas in our lives. Yeah. You know, my brother was severe is severely autistic and uh in his teenage years developed severe mental health problems and schizophrenia. And I used to have to lock myself in my mom's wardrobe when he was hallucinating and like hitting my mom and things like that. And again, you think it was traumatic. I was like 10. But at the time, I didn't class it as trauma no, and it's it only now what
0: it's what happened. Yeah.
1: There. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But when you think about it from that Bessel van like that meaning is still inside your body.
1: Mm-hmm. That meaning
0: is still, you know, in there. And so it can get triggered by, mm-hmm. and then you have these responses where you're like, Oh, that's a weird desp- response to have, mm-hmm. but it's there inside of you. One of the things that was really, so we have this teenager die and we never spoke about it again. And one of the things that you guys just mentioned, which I just think is worth telling the audience, like when you have a sudden death, if you're you're waiting at dinner and your person is 15 minutes late, you are the person who has already grieved is planning the outfit they're wearing to the funeral, what music is going to be playing. You know, like we have written your eulogy. And when you show up, we might be like, fuck you, fuck you. Oh We're my God. Yes. And I yes. have had to explain that to people. Like, listen, it's actually totally reasonable for you to be 15 minutes late, but I also just need you to know that I will have planned your, inti- my husband in particular, where, and, and this is something I wanted to ask you guys about, because I know you do this for each other. I know right. you are a tether. I know you send each other texts because you show them sometimes on your Instagram of like, Hey, I'm having a griefy day or But I really think that one of the things that is so important is that when you're in that moment where you're having is to is to reach out to somebody so that you're not alone, so that you say to someone, hey, I need you to know that this is what's happening right now. I need you to like I am in a really dark place with this. I'm sure there's an explanation, but and because I think that's the legacy of loss is that you spend weeks, you know, it's if my kids get sick. I am like, well, they probably have leukemia. And I understand that lots of people do that. But when I say they probably have leukemia, I mean, inside my body, I am quaking with the terror of, I am already anticipating the loss of my child. I'm grieving them in this moment. I'm not just Mm -hmm. feeling afraid. I'm feeling petrified.
2: Yes, uh, I can relate to this so much. I don't know if you do this one as well, but I then start imagining what my life would look like without them and how I wouldn't be able to cope because I've already been through the loss of my mom. And I start just snowballing into wow. so far into the future of like, I actually wouldn't be able to survive another thing going wrong. Yeah. And then it's just absolute panic, and sheer terror <laughs> that there's so much at stake.
0: Like right. And all they have is like a little cold a long, not that many years oh. ago. My youngest is 11. And when he was like two years old, we were going up to my parents' house on Cape Cod, which is this gorgeous beach. And, um, the previous years we had, my mother had organized a photographer. So we had these beautiful black and white pictures of my other kids. So we're going up and my husband and I are like, we don't need more black and white portraits to hang in our hallway. Like, I don't even like those. So my mom's like, do you want the photographer? And so I just say, no. And then that night I have a nightmare that my son dies and I wake up in the morning and I'm like, Oh my God, if we don't get those photos, he's probably going to die. And then I don't say anything about it because I know how crazy it is because I live on the planet. I know that my brain is being crazy. So I don't say anything. And now I'm snapping at my husband and he's like, what is going on with you? And now I don't want to hold the baby because I'm like, "The baby's probably going to die. It shouldn't become so attached. It's not funny, but I feel like- so important so. because you guys are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. So finally I say to my husband, who is by the way, the world's best human. I say, I need you to know, I just need you to know what my brain is doing to me. I need you to know this is the math equation. And his response is like, well, then why don't we just get those pictures? Like that's good. <laughs> and then of course, when he says that, I'm like, we don't need those pictures, but when <laughs> my mom died, I had so many crazy thoughts like that. So many Mm. and the PTSD ones that are like, it's your fault. They come and go. Mm. And I think people are like, oh, you're better. Look at you. You put makeup on your hair. Like you're better. You're writing books. I am better. And I live with PTSD. I live with trauma. And so there are days, particularly at night when I'm tired and I will put my head on the pillow and it's right there. Mm. It's your fault. She died. Mm. So then I have to, what I do is I text my best friend I text my sister and I text, Oh, well, I tell my husband if he's in front of me and I say, mm-hmm. I just need you to know, like those shitty thoughts are kicking my ass mm-hmm. today. And, you know, I just told you off Mike that we went to go do my mom's jewelry the whole week before I was reliving all the things that I believe I should have done, you know, cause then it, she wouldn't have died. And so it's just sort of this little, like, epidemic and I think people think well you know time goes by and you get better and the grief goes away and Mm. I think in reality it's how we're talking about it which is like comes and goes right and I think we get better at managing
2: it you know like Mm. I was in the shower yesterday and I was going over the conversations in my head of leading the days leading into when it happened and I was back there again but it's not as all-consuming I can I can step out of it again whereas in the early months, I couldn't step out of it. It was just mm. constant, you know. So I have gotten better at managing that, and I guess it doesn't necessarily get easier over time, but you do. It does become more manageable when you do the work, you know. Well, you and I think times.
0: you're a little less afraid, right? Like I used to mm. be, like this yeah. is I'm gonna die from this. Like, I, you know, I'm curious for you, um, because. I always ask people this question, you know, some things that grievers say are like, well, you know, my daughter was only six months or I had twin boys who needed me. And I don't know. I always have this like little bit of shame about that because I was like, fuck you guys for needing me to make you sandwiches. I really felt um, like enraged that anyone needed me for anything because I could barely function. And so when people talk about like, no, it was good. I, you know, it was good to be a parent. I feel really jealous. Mm-hmm. I feel like I wish that's how I felt. Cause that sounds like a better version of a parent. What I wanted was for someone to take them away from me so that I didn't have, so that I could actually be as poorly as I was yeah. and just attend to, I couldn't see past my own hands. So yeah. I just didn't want, I mean, we also had a little asshole dog at the same time. And I was like, get the dog out of here. <laughs> like the kids all do, but the dog. For <laughs> sake.
2: I'm often normalizing those sorts of thoughts and feelings. Like I even had that before my mom died, when my daughter was born, I had a, a very traumatic birth, but, uh, a, an emergency cesarean and they took her out and they were like, I'm going to put her on your chest. I said, take her away. I I do not want her near me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like an awful human. And so of course that feeling was in grief. It's like, this is just too much. Stop crying. Stop fucking crying. Like I can't. And the the crying, like that newborn cry was like a shock to my system. And still I hate it. Like my just I hate it and I try to stop it as much as I can and Ben's always like it's normal you you got to let them win you got to let them cry and I'm like I can't I've got to stop it
0: so Mm -hmm. that's something I I
2: struggle with a lot like even last night my daughter's three now and she was screaming in the middle of the night for no reason for like half an hour and I was like Mm -hmm. the anger I get so angry and I have to just try and calm my nervous system down and it's just fucked it's like why can't Mm. i just be a normal mom where i can go it's all right sweetheart i
0: get so enraged (laughs) i'm like just fucking stop i i mean i do think maybe that's the legacy of trauma inside the system Mm, is that we have these little windows of tolerance and our systems are really sensitive i i I think it is but but I know the cry you're talking about. I mean, mm. I, I've been known to walk out of a grocery store and to leave a restaurant. Cause I'm like, how dare you make me hear that noise? Oh, They're like, babies are amazing. And I'm like, but also they can do that thing where it makes me feel like I'm lit up. Uh, and honestly, my partner doesn't I, feel
2: it. He doesn't get affected. I'm like, yeah. how could you not?
1: <laughs> but I think like, yeah. could there be something can Megan as, as a therapist- this might be something that you explore with your patients, but could there be something about the grieving styles in that? Right. Like some parents are okay because looking after a kid is, is giving them something to do. And I know you say to grieve is a verb, but it's, it's their way of processing. Like Im and I, we've talked about our very different grieving styles and we talked about it with you when, when you're on our yeah. pod, but for me, I'm, I, I'm practical. And when my mum died, I literally went, full force, full throttle into planning mode. I organized her funeral. It was the event of the year. You know, I, I sorted out her estate. I was, I thought I was doing grief wrong because I wasn't curled up on the floor and I was able to function and I was able to do things pretty well. And I thought that there was something wrong with me Uh, for a long time. I shamed myself and in feels the emotions and didn't, you know, didn't want to didn't want to deal with her daughter all the time. And she was ensconced by the emotions. And I wonder, is there something in that when it comes to parenting as well with the grieving styles? Do you think?
0: Yeah, it's such a good question. I don't know the answer. And I'm like, I'm actually hesitant to say what I really think. So I'm just going to say it, right? Because we're here to have the true conversations. I have a lot of trouble with these intuitive, like the concept of one is emotional and one is sort of more practical. So for the audience, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about sort of the functioning and the doing one looks more like thinking and doing, and one looks more like feeling. Mm. I don't know if I believe in this. So I'm going to get, I'm going to get filleted people right now. They're unfollowing me, but I actually think that there is a trajectory of grief. And I have people who come into me and they say, I didn't grieve my mom. She died 10 years ago. And I'm able to say, look at all the practical things that you have done, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but they have not touched a lot of the emotional experience. And Mm -hmm. I don't think you do one or the other, I think it's more like a temporal experience that some people do the emotions first. Mm. And that at least as a trauma therapist, people who haven't figured out how to do the emotion sometimes find themselves overwhelmed when they get fired or Mm. when their husband asks for a divorce Or when they were in a a car accident that wasn't going to kill anyone, but now they're having panic attacks. So I Mm. hate to say that because I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure if I I think think that there's one or the other. I think it's more like you're doing this one and we're going to get to this one because I think, I think it's, I think you can't miss the emotional part.
1: It's really interesting. And I'm doing myself a disservice because I was very emotional as well. Right. So I think by me saying I was practical, like I was very emotional, but I just wasn't constantly emotional. Right. Like for the first year and a half, like I'd have, we call them grief bombs, waves of grief. Like I, yeah, there were, there were days where I couldn't get out of bed. So I think I'm making it sound like I didn't have any emotions at all. And I did, but I think what surprised me was it wasn't all-consuming.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think it's just really interesting what you've said because I'm like having light bulb moments because I was mm. like, yeah, I'm such an intuitive griever. And I like I, I am an intuitive person and I'm so emotional yeah. and yeah. I've done the emotion, like I'm I'm in it. The emotions are being like, you know, I've nailed the emotions. Let's like, put it that way. Like I've got a fucking 10 out of 10 gold star in the emotions. But when it comes to looking at my mum's belongings or going, you know, to the, like the area where she lived or anything that makes it real and like tangible, I can't do it. I cannot do it. But I know one day I got to have to do it. Yet. Exactly. Exactly. This is the thing.
0: Like if we're talking about styles as being where you go first and what you lean towards, but I think how people talk about styles is you are one or the other. And I just, I don't know that there is anything in the world where you get to skip the emotional experience. And I will say, because people ask Mm -hmm. this question a lot, you know, I checked myself into an inpatient facility, did all a ton of emotion. I still do a ton of emotion, but I went from not being able to get off my porch swing. And I mean, I couldn't even put a sweater on myself, which when I think back at that, I'm like, who was that person? But Mm. that's how much my system was overloaded. But since my mom died, I've written three books. I've started a podcast. I see client, like the functioning part has been as intense as the emotional part. So Mm. I think, you know, as a trauma therapist, I'm always like trying to offer people cups of tea. Like, does this help? Does this feel good? Is this helping you try this on? And I think about that with grieving where it's like, I don't know that I really believe we can tell anyone. We can just sort of like offer them the hope that it isn't always going to feel this bad. And all of the stories that we've heard, what about this? Try that. Here's my experience. I mean, that's what I think is like at the best and the good of what your book is and what your podcast is, is you guys are so curious and you're so enthusiastic about the idea and the belief and sharing your experience of like, it was hellacious. I didn't think I'd survive. And and now I laugh and I'm going to get married. And I, ha- you know, like a kid, all the things that you guys are doing, I'm making a book. But I think the, I think the concept behind how do we show up for the energy when people say to me like I spent the first 10 years after my mom died you know managing her business I'm happy to call that grief work I just don't think mm-hmm. it's all the grief work I think there's yeah. still gonna have to be you're gonna get to your mom's stuff I mean I just got to my mom's stuff you well know? that's the thing you talking about going through your mom's jewelry I'm like
2: oh like not, can't do it because it makes it real. I'm like, that should be with her. She should be wearing that. Like, why would I be going through it? So I very much do avoid those practical tasks because I'm not ready. And I've also learned that it's okay. That it in three years is still fresh in a grand scheme of everything. Like I'm not ready and that's okay. There's no rushing these sorts of things, but I do agree with you. It is something that I will eventually have to do. You know, it is that Trajectory. Yeah. And I always say
0: to people like, you know, don't do more than you have to do. And if your instinct says, don't do it, don't do it. So Mm -hmm. even when people are like, but you have to, you know, there's a lot of ways to solve that problem. Like you might not have to. When I was cleaning out my mom's house, which I was ready to do, but it was during COVID when I was cleaning it out, I opened my dad's closet and all his fucking clothes were in there. And he had died two years before. It never occurred to me that all his clothes were also in the house. And I just stood out in the hall and called my husband and was like, this is a bridge too far. I can't do both. I I am prepared for, the, for my mom. I can't, all my dad's shoes and belts. I just couldn't, I couldn't even look at them. And my husband was like, no problem. He had no feeling about it. But I do always say to people, have to is really relative. And sometimes we're pushing ourselves. And if the wisdom inside your system is, says you can't do it and no one's making you do it, there will be a day where you can't and it might be 20 years from now but it might also not the way that we feel right now always changes and shifts and some of the jewelry that my that my sisters and i went through you know i sat with my mom's body after she died and my mom wore the same jewelry every day and so there were these bracelets and these rings that were part of some of the ptsd images and my sisters were both like you want this jewelry and i was like the hell i want that jewelry i don't ever want to see that jewelry again and my little sister who is the size and shape of my mom put it on and immediately the images of them being on my mother's dead hand were gone like i can't even really conjure them up because i now see them on my sister's hand and i was like shit if i had known that might happen i would have done this years ago i've been haunted mm-hmm. by the image but but who knows maybe it only happened because that was the exact right moment right i mean we can exactly only right. just show up for our work that's in front of us and that that had to get done it was time And I had put it off as long as I could.
2: Yeah. And I feel like Sal was forced to do all of those things. Like you didn't have a choice, did you, Sal?
1: No, I didn't. I had to clear a house out and I only had a certain luggage allowance to bring stuff back to Australia. So I had to be ruthless. And I wish now that I'd kept more of my mum's things. I've only got one item of clothing that's hers. Um, I've got some jewellery. I haven't looked at the jewellery for years. I've seen loads of psychics and they mention like wearing her rings and I just I just can't. So even though Mm -hmm. I have confronted it, it was and like Im said, it was, it was just out of I had to, I didn't have a choice. But um I really wish that I'd had more the luxury of time to be able to keep some things instead of just shoving things into bin bags and you know, going to the tip or to, you know, the junkyard to to throw them out. So I haven't met a single
0: person that has no regrets about this stuff either though, Mm. you know? So it's interesting because when we live all on the same block and we talk about this, you know, I'll come to you because it's pretty there. And it's, I think maybe less crazy than this country. I have this fantasy of like having a conference where people can come and they can learn about all the paperwork. So all the paperwork that you can do ahead of time to make the stuff easier and all the paperwork that you can do ahead of time to make choices about your body easier. I just think that the concept also has to be said, which is you're going to have regrets. You're going to do some of this wrong. You're going to throw shit away that you didn't know was going to matter to you and it's going to hurt you. And I'm watching the clock. I'm terrible at time, but I'm keeping you way too long because I never want to stop talking to you. Can I ask one (laughs) question before, um, because I don't know, it's like a question that I want to know. How do you miss your moms now? Like what, what is the thing we talked about it when I was on your podcast. I miss my mom when something great happens, because when something great happens, she would have talked to me about that forever. You know what I mean? Like when you have a new boyfriend or somebody likes you and your best friend is willing to just never stop talking about, you know, what he said to you and how he, that's my, that's how my mom was in my life. If I was super excited about paint color for my house, she wanted to talk about the paint color and where did I get it? And was I going to paint another part of the house and no one else wanted to talk about that. And I knew it. And so when something happens that I'm excited about, I'm like, lady, where are you? I need to have this conversation. And you were the person. So I'm just curious, like, how do you miss them the most? Where, where do you notice the lack of them?
1: Mm, I miss my mom in a, in a similar way. She was such a cheerleader. Um, and I miss being able to share things with her, especially the book deal, you know, when we got the book deal and then we, you know, we wrote a book and she, she, She would have just been so proud. But I also miss her when it comes to making life decisions. So before she died, six months before she died, I had a miscarriage. And it got me thinking, and this is, it's difficult for me to even say this, because I feel like it's a divisive topic, but I started to think really deeply about whether I actually wanted to have kids. And Mm. my mum was supporting me in that decision. And I was really leaning on her Um, and then she was gone. And I've had to work through that on my own for the last couple of years and think really deeply about it and like read all the books. But I haven't had that person who knows me better than I know myself to help me make that decision. and And I really miss her around those big critical life things. Like as women, there's a finite window where you make that decision. And I've had to stick to the decision that I feel is true to me. But I haven't had her guiding me and that's been really hard. I miss her, especially around oh, that. But yeah, just the general yeah. support and, and championing, you know, everything. Yeah. But but that's
0: been one particular area where I've really, really. Right, because no one absence. can feel that. I mean, no one can feel your, they, no one can feel it anyway. But, but my sister's yeah. always like, well, call me. I'm like, no, I, no, it, I just have to learn to live without it. But it's so bad. It's mm. so hard to do. And I hate it. Mm. What about for you, M? Do you have a?
2: Yeah, I miss my mom in the mundane yeah. moments. You know, I miss her on the on the Wednesday that I have off, and it's sunny, and we go for a picnic with my daughter. You know, just the really simple moments. And I don't feel like I have anyone in my life that I, I do that with. Yeah. You know, it's such a huge loss, like just going for lunch or going down to the beach and sitting on the sand and chatting and watching the waves and yeah I just miss those everyday connection moments with her and also around my daughter like every time she does something I just want to share it with my mom every time she started to like bring home drawings of her and grandma which is just a whole nother whole nother thing that I'm trying to come to terms with but she's yeah she's only three she's nearly four and she's starting to grieve for my mom yeah that's really hard um yeah I miss her for that reassurance that I'm doing a good job as a mom um yeah it's hard like I think I miss her most now that I'm a mom and there's conversations that I want to have I feel like if I'd had her in my life when I was a, like, I had it for nine months, obviously, but like now that I'm out of the newborn bubble,
0: yeah,
2: I, I see the world differently. Having a child, I think does Definitely. change your outlook totally. on some things. And I feel like our relationship would have gotten a lot deeper and I would have been able to see my mom as more of a human being. I think and I right. miss that. I don't get to have that experience yeah. with the maturity that I have now since becoming a mom. I feel like it would have changed our relationship in a lot of ways. And I would have been able to sit back and go, I'm sorry for being an awful teenager. Like that must've been so hard for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I never said that to her, you know, I'm sorry for all the things that I did that were effed up when I was a kid. Like it would have been really difficult and I appreciate everything you've done. I just wish I got to say those things. Yeah. So I
0: miss her in all of those moments. That really resonates with me because I was difficult for my mom when I was in my early twenties and I didn't try to not be difficult. I let her know that I didn't like her choices. And I mean, I was just trying to find my own way, but it is, there's something about how hard it is to raise kids and how hard you love them. That just makes the mom role make a different kind of sense. You know, I don't know. And I, My mom had double that. I have three kids. My mom had six kids. And so I did a fair amount of being like, just explain to me again, how you kept us fed. Like, I don't even understand how you (laughs) made the food. She didn't have a microwave, you know, like (laughs) what the hell? But I was just getting to the point of being able to be like, I have so much respect for what you did and how hard it was. And I liked that. I liked where we were and I wanted to thank her more you know, I didn't buy her birthday presents when I was 15, but like, I liked, but yeah, I liked honoring her because I didn't do that forever. And I, I am pissed
2: Yes, that I don't
0: get more of that.
2: Yeah. I feel like we're at that age now where we just really appreciate our moms and we want to hang out with them. We want to like, you know, just do things that they want to do all the things we didn't want to do when we were in our twenties and, you know, early motherhood. Like I just, yeah. I wish that we get to be who we are now with our mums and for, mm-hmm. for them to get to experience, you know, where we're at in our lives. And, but again, we wouldn't be who we are now if we hadn't lost our mums. And it's a funny one. Like the whole book is bittersweet. And I know you, you feel exactly the same, Megan, like it's, yeah. it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them, but it's also
0: something that we wish they were here to experience with us. It's hard. It's all hard. And yeah. I and mean, we grow these whole parts of ourselves. Like when I moved house after my dad died, I was like, wow, he doesn't know where I live. Mm. Well, he's also not alive, but like somehow living in a house that he never knew I lived in is so complicated. I'm going to leave us with this thought because somebody said this to me and I just, it sticks with me that there is a way that, that women who have lost their mothers mother, each other That we show up with a kind of understanding about what that ache is like that is not the same. You know, you have this whole chapter in your book about envy, and I always call it like the math of loss when people are like, I see a mother and a daughter, I see like, God forbid, like several generations. And I'm like, how, (laughs) like, why do you get that your people longer than I had my people? But I am aware that there are other ways in which people who are not, I'm not even like close to show up for family events or significant things or give me advice. And the odd thing is the grief community, you know, I text Claire Bidwell Smith when I'm like, oh my God, you know, this thing that happened and I don't know what to do because my mom's not here to ask. And, you know, she had all of her kids before her mom died when she was, you know, basically a teenager Mm -hmm. and she's, and her text will be, I get it. And I'm like, that's right. That's what my mom would have said. Like, I get it. It's hard. Being a grown up is hard. That's what she would have said. Something like that. Or I'm sorry for you. Yeah. So I just really appreciate these conversations. You guys, we told some truths today. Some I've never said that about, I don't really think there's intuitive versus instruction of, you know. But I did it. It's out there now. I'm gonna get in trouble. But I I'm really... gonna go rewrite our book. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> it was quite... Well, this is what makes the interesting conversation, right? If we all had the same opinions, it would be boring. So it's been a really yeah. educational and as always, MRJ, a very insightful chat. You, you guys guys are
0: the best. You are the best. I'm sorry, I just blew <laughs> our time up, but I, I'd I'd stay here until we like slept over.